When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. You're listening to What I Wish I'd Known. Please be advised that in this episode, there are discussions of topics that some listeners may find upsetting. Hello and welcome to What I Wish I'd Known, in association with Speakers for Schools, the youth social mobility charity that provides inspirational speakers and work experience opportunities. I'm Alice Thompson. And I'm Rachel Sylvester. And in this podcast, we talk to extraordinary people who've lived astonishing lives, brushed with displacement, disease, financial ruin, abandonment, bereavement. And not only have they survived, but thrived. Loss and adversity are a part of life, but an imperfect past isn't always an indicator of what's to come. But why is it that often the people with the hardest beginnings in life become the most successful adults? And is there something to learn from these people who perhaps have the strongest sense of what matters most? In this series, we'll be speaking to a collection of remarkable individuals on how they achieved success in the face of adversity. And we'll be reflecting on some of our greatest interviews to date with new thoughts and revelations. Welcome to What I Wish I'd Known. In this episode, we're taking a listen back to one of our favourite past interviews with award-winning novelist Maggie O'Farrell. In 2007, she was named as one of Waterstone's 25 Authors of the Future, and her brilliant book Hamnet won the Women's Prize for Fiction and is now being turned into a play. Her latest novel, called The Marriage Portrait, was also showered with praise when it was published in 2022. But despite her success as a writer, Maggie's life has been littered with misfortunes. She's had so many sliding door moments that she subtitled her memoir, I Am, I Am, I Am, 17 Brushes with Death. The things in life which don't go to plan are usually more important, more formative, I think, in the long run, she says, than the things that do. You need to expect the unexpected and to embrace it. From the outside, Maggie's life has been extraordinarily unlucky, with countless near-death experiences, although she would argue that the opposite is true and she's been extremely fortunate to survive moments in her life which might have had devastating repercussions. And then Jimmy Savile visited you at one point, yes, didn't that's right. he? What yes. happened? Can you remember it vividly? Yes, I do, because he was so he was really famous, mm-hmm. you know, and I used to watch him every week on TV. So so I do remember suddenly I must have been asleep and I woke up and there he was standing over me. Quite and it creepy. was very creepy. But the key thing I think, which my life could have gone in a very different direction, I was lucky that I had a 24-hour watch, so there was a nurse mm. with him. But I do remember him saying to her, Twice, you can go. I'll look after her. From suffering from a mysterious neurological illness in her childhood, which left her hospitalised, to a chilling encounter with a stranger on a dark night, Maggie's life is nothing short of shocking and spellbinding at the same time. The one moment that I found so extraordinary was when she was in hospital and she said that she heard a nurse going past her saying, there's a little girl next door who's dying in there. And I thought that was extraordinary because she knew everyone thought she was about to die when she was a child. And 
And that's the image that stayed with me most. I don't know what you felt, Rachel. Yeah, the doctors expected her to die, mm. then they expected her not to be able to walk again, but she kind of fought back. And I think that's given her a real urgency and a real determination to make the most of every second of life. And there's also a sort of willingness to take risks. I think it's really fascinating why has she had so many near-death experiences? Does she always push the boundaries? But she's also got this sort of empathy and creativity that a lot of the writers and artists that we've spoken to over the years also share, that they say gives them this kind of creative spark. Mm. And what I found extraordinary is this sense of death that's ever-present beside her. So she, she does go through these 17 near-death experiences. She nearly drowns. She's in a plane accident. I mean, it'd be terrifying to be anywhere near her in some ways. But then even more poignant, I think, is that she has a daughter who is really always just on the cusp of life because she has this condition where she's allergic to a lot of different things. And so she's got this constant fear that something might go wrong in her life. And yet that makes her very, very creative. Rather than, as you say, Rachel, it's, she's not nervous. She's constantly taking risks with her life. Partly, I think, because she knows how fragile it is. And also, because she was spent so long lying on a hospital bed as a child, she learnt to live in her imagination. Mm. So she talks about listening to story tapes because she was too sick even to pick up a book mm. to read. But she learnt through that to sort of shape narrative and she learnt about character. And you see that in her writing now. And also, I think there's always death is quite close mm. to a lot of her books. I think it is amazing that so many people we've interviewed haven't been to school, that you realise that sense of, of educating yourself and reading and, and, and learning about other people's stories and desperately trying to find out about the outside world when she's in this hospital and she's in the dark and there's almost nothing she can do and, and there's no interaction with any other children brings out the most in her the, and the sort of most extraordinary creativity. And, and actually I saw the Hamlet play and I thought that was phenomenal but also it slightly chimed with her life because it is all about death and about the unexpected and and it's always the child you don't think is going to die that does. So I was out walking and a man who I had passed earlier down the valley appeared in front of me and I think in that way that you have to learn, women have to learn, you learn it's a kind of a bodily instinct isn't it? Sometimes your body knows something before your mind does. There's a sixth sense, isn't there? Mm. Yes, yeah. something and you suddenly, wrong. you get the hairs on your back and your heart speeds up and you think, this, this isn't right. There was nobody around, mm. so there was no point in me screaming. The only thing I had in my armoury, in a sense, was being able to talk my way out of it. There was no, I didn't have any other chance. He was probably twice my size. We went to interview Maggie in Edinburgh at her home that she shares with her husband and three children. She's got this beautiful writing room in the garden where we sat. It was a glorious sunny day and the garden was looking really lovely. And I thought her writing room, I was just incredibly envious of it and even more so because she had a very beautiful pen and I'm obsessed by pens because I do love writing in longhand. So Rachel, I think you then asked her, didn't you, about the pen because we were both rather intrigued that she may just write in longhand rather than on a computer. We're talking to you in your beautiful writing studio, which is all glass and in the middle of your garden. And there's actually an old-fashioned inkstand on the table. Do you write in a pen and ink? Not exclusively, I would say, but I use it when I'm writing by hand, which I do sometimes. Um, yes, I do, actually. I really love fountain pens. I actually collect vintage fountain pens, particularly Parker and Schaefer, so I always buy them whenever I find them in flea markets or 
charity shops. I like the ritual of you sit down every morning and I fill my pen and then I write my diary and then I write whatever notes I need. But you know, I, I'm not saying that I write my novels by long hand using <laughs> <laughs> a battered pen. That would be really, that would be taking it to extremes. Obviously, Although your desk is so neat, isn't it? You've just got well, one actually, dictionary. Well, this is my writing studio. So in the house I have a oh, study which is it's really not absolutely crammed with all kinds of rubbish and lunch boxes and school commissions forms and you know it's, that's where it all goes this is why we're out here because it's nice and tidy and quiet i think it's really hard to believe when you're sitting with her in the garden that she's gone through all that hardship and all those near-death experiences what's phenomenal is that she remains so focused on all the light in her life and she recognizes i think that without her challenging past she probably wouldn't have had such a strong affiliation to writing novels or to the word. What adversity can create in your life, particularly when you're a child, is the craving for escapism. And I think that was certainly true. You know, I think all writers, before they are writers, you, you have to be a reader. Mm. You know, all writers are first readers. And, you know, I think reading itself is a huge escapism. It was for me as a child. You know, when I was ill, I spent a year or more in bed pretty much on my own, you know, without my sisters or friends, and that's all I did. And when I couldn't physically hold a book, I listened to audiobooks. And then I just read my books, and I read them over and over and over again. I read from one end of my bookcase to the other and read them, you know, so I read my favourite books six, seven, eight, nine times. I knew them off by heart. What was your favourite one? Well, I loved the Moomins to the Janssen, and someone gave me Moomin Land in midwinter when I was really quite ill, and... I remember being completely struck by that because I don't know if you know it, but it opens with Moomin waking up mm. and all his family hibernating and he's in the world and the world is completely unrecognisable. So looking back, it's a really Take perfect metaphor for a child who's ill because mm. you wake up and suddenly your whole world is different. Life is completely unrecognisable and you're, everyone's absent. It's, it was very, looking back now, obviously it would have struck a child who's suddenly become incapacitated and was basically living in hospital. <laughs> so I'm, but you know, Tilly Anson's writing is astonishing. And I do remember thinking after I'd read it several times, you know, I remember thinking having, obviously it was a very kind of early level, sort of very basic level, but thinking, you know, why does she start this chapter with dialogue? Why isn't there a once upon a time or, you know, a kind of scene setting? And what difference does that make? What difference does it make that we're starting immediately and gives it immediacy? And, and what difference does it make that it's in the present tense or the past tense? And so I do remember then thinking in those ways. But also I love the movement and I love Pippi Longstocking and I loved uh, uh, Secret Garden and Philippa Pierce's book, you know, Tom's Midnight Garden. Yeah. So, yeah, so I read those over and over again. <laughs> in this episode of What I Wish I'd Known, award-winning novelist Maggie O'Farrell tells us her story about how she's faced death on numerous occasions and lived to tell the tale. Maggie's early life started off sounding rather idyllic. She was born the middle of three sisters in Northern Ireland and then moved to Wales when she was only two years old. Maggie reflects on her earliest memories from this period of her childhood. We used to spend a lot of time in Ireland, out in the west of Ireland, and that's, those are really deep-seated memories somehow of being staying on farms and riding donkeys and going to cut turf and <laughs> being out on the beach, you know, the beaches in, say, Connemara, which were, which are actually coral beaches, you don't get sand, you get these little tiny, tiny bits of broken coral. Um, so no, I was, I think I've always been very um, aware of my surroundings, I think, certainly, and very interested in nature. I loved animals. And so no, I did, I did have a very good childhood, I had two sisters, so I always had people to play with. And 
And your mum said you were a nightmare to rear. What do you mean by that? <laughs> I think I think I was very, I was just very, I didn't really, wasn't really interested in following rules and being good and sitting still and keeping myself neat and tidy. I was, I was always, I think, just filled with curiosity, actually. Um, Graham Swift said in one of his novels that curiosity weds us to the world. And I think that's very true. I've always wanted to know what's what happens if you do X or Y or what's around the next corner or, you know, if you say something like this or what happens when you put that word in the sentence. It's always been a... I suppose that's where my interest in narrative comes from, you know, what happens if. I mean, that's what narrative is, isn't it? Mm. <laughs> it's what stories it's are. the mm. essence of it. Then when you were eight, one morning you woke up with a terrible mm. headache. Yeah. Just describe what happened. What did it feel like? Well, it was towards the end of the summer holidays and I remember waking up and having, yes, like you say, an absolutely terrible headache, so terrible that everything, like movement really, waking up in the winter mm. seemed different. My vision was slightly altered and um, and gradually what happened was that I gradually lost um, fine motor control and then gross motor control and so I was started to shake and then I couldn't lift my head up and then I couldn't pick up pens or cutlery or a spoon and then eventually I couldn't walk um, well, by which point I was um, in a smaller hospital and then I was sent to the big hospital in Cardiff and I was in intensive care. It must have been terrifying for your parents as well. Yes, I think it was. I mean, actually, it's funny thinking about it now you know, as an adult with children of a similar age, I can see it from their point of view. It must be absolutely <laughs> terrifying. Did they know what you had? No, nobody could quite work it out. And I had lots of tests and they thought it was meningitis or they narrowed it down eventually to encephalitis, encephalitis of the cerebellum. Uh, yeah, which was quite rare. And it was very severe, obviously, the one that I had. When did you first realise it was something seriously wrong, not just a headache? What was the first thing that made you... I think when I, I mean, obviously going into hospital is quite a big, mm. you realise something's wrong. But I think I knew, you know, being unable to pick up or mm. grip, that was quite a fright. I remember being quite frightened by that. I remember, distinctly remember trying to pick up my toothbrush and thinking, I, I can't do it, you know. Mm. And realising the sort of message from wanting to do something wasn't reaching my muscles, my nerves. I remember telling my mum that. Uh, but I do remember coming, walking downstairs when I, when I had started to shake and my legs were going. I remember the family doctor who'd known us for years came and he was standing in the front hall with my mum and I was coming down the stairs and I remember the two of them watching me as I was trying to come down the stairs. Oh. <laughs> and I do remember thinking that those are not good expressions, oh. you know, there's something. Yeah. And I remember him turning to my mum and saying, she has to go to hospital, you have to take a nap, yeah. you know. Were you the kind of child that thought about death at all then? Before then? Uh, it's funny, it's really hard to know what I was, it's hard to kind of pinpoint what I was like before. That's the funny mm. thing. And I do remember being... I remember the sensation of being very physically able, which obviously I haven't really been since. I mean, obviously I'm much more able now than I, I was, but the idea of not thinking about motion and thinking about ability, physical ability. I have that sort of strange sort of root of memory. But in terms of who I was before and who I became afterwards, it's, it's quite hard to, to fathom, you know, mm. what changed and what didn't, because you're quite unformed, really, by the time you're mm. seven or eight, aren't you? There's still mm. there's an awful lot up. And what was the most frightening moment? You talk about going into a scanner and that being oh, yes. really frightening. I still have horror. I still have terrible claustrophobia. <laughs> do you? And because of <laughs> I the scanner? Do. I think it must be that. I can't think what else it would be. Yeah. You have to be so still, don't you? Yeah, you have to be completely still. And it's huge and it's noisy. You know, I mean, yeah. I think, in, you know, whenever it was, 1980 or 81, 
I think they were particularly sedated. I mean, that was terrifying. I had to be sedated. And being sedated was horrible. Yeah. Yeah. Because they tried to strap you down. Yeah, that's right. They tried to strap me down. Yeah. yeah. So that was awful. And also, my they did it without my mum being there, which is, mm. you know, oh. thinking about it now, it's just, it's just funny. And then they tried again with my mum. And my mum could come into the room with me. But even then, I couldn't, I couldn't stand it. Mm. Even now, there's a cupboard in our house under the stairs, and I have trouble, okay. <laughs> I have trouble going in there. It's low spaces. <laughs> <laughs> get me. And you overheard a nurse didn't you, saying yes, that's right. to somebody else, there's a little girl dying there about yeah, you. Yeah, that's and right. was that when you realised that? I think that's when I realised that I was, they expected me to die. I hadn't realised it before then. Because when you're a child in hospital, you know, nobody, nobody really tells you what's wrong. And obviously mm. you get a very sanitised, metabolised version from your mum or your dad or whatever. But I mean, obviously I knew something was really wrong because mm. I couldn't move and I was in an isolation room you know I knew that was <laughs> those are not good signs but I hadn't really I hadn't clocked that I was in mortal danger certainly and what happened was so I had a nurse at that point I was under 24-hour watch and there was a nurse with me all the time and the door to my room was open and somebody was walking past the corridor and they told the child to be quiet because there was a little girl dying in the room and I my first thought I remember thinking oh that's awful poor little girl you know <laughs> I wonder how old she yes. is you know what a terrible thing to die as a child and then the nurse in the room next to me jumped up and shut the door and looked really embarrassed. And that's when I thought, oh, my God, they mean me. Oh. They think I'm the one who's dying. And what did you feel? Were you frightened of dying? Or did you not really think it was real? Not really. Actually, I remember feeling, oh, well, how, how did I not see that? You know, oh, of course it's me. You know, why did I? And I felt sort of, I felt sort of stupid because I thought, well, of course that's what all this means. You know. So did you sort of feel resigned to dying? I don't know. I think I, I remember feeling slightly, I suppose in a way, I mean, I was so ill, you know, that you're in a very altered mental state anyway, and I couldn't move, you know. So I remember, and I'm feeling very sad, certainly, very sad, because, mm. you know, I felt there was a lot left, there was a lot of living I still mm. needed to do. Mm. <laughs> you couldn't even, write anything down then, could you? Or no, you nothing. I couldn't or... even pick up, if there'd been a pen on the bedside table, I couldn't have picked it up. No. So I had my audiobooks that I had. So a neighbour had given us, because we didn't have anything like that, uh, some story tapes and a tape machine so that I could borrow it. But I had to ask people to turn them over for me when they finished. And I had Felicity Kendall reading Tales of Beatrix Potter. And somebody else reading My Naughty Little Sister. So I listened to those over and over again. And still to this day, when I hear Felicity Kendall's voice, mm. <laughs> I, I can hear, I can picture my hospital room. And, but so, I still love Beatrix Potter. Amazing stories, beautiful vocabulary. And then Jimmy Savile visited you at one point. Yes, didn't that's right. he? What yes. happened? Can you remember it vividly? Yes, I do, because he was so, he was really famous, mm. you know, and I used to watch him every week on TV. So. So I do remember suddenly <clears throat> I must have been asleep and I woke up and there he was standing over me. Quite and it creepy. was very creepy. Well, at the time it wasn't creepy, but it was just, it seemed so astonishing. I mean, it was, you know, obviously it was a series, it was one more series of astonishing incidents mm. among many because I, you know, so many strange things had happened to me at that point. It's slightly like dreamlike with his Yes, very because I'd woken up and there he was. And, necklace. And it was, yeah, it was very mm. strange. And your parents in the room? My parents weren't there. And, but the nurse, the key thing, I think, which my life could have gone in a very different direction, but I was lucky that I had a 24-hour watch, so there was a nurse mm. with me. But I do remember him saying to her twice, you can go, I'll look oh. after her. Oh, goodness. And you once said that going through a really severe illness completely refigures you. 
yeah. in your life. And it's, it's sort of like passing through fire. What do you think it then had on your foot? Can you remember really how you changed? I think everything changed, actually, because when I left hospital, I so the first of all, they thought I was going to die because they thought the paralysis that the encephalitis was in, was in, in my voluntary actions would affect my involuntary body responses. So they thought that it was going to affect my heart and my respiratory mm. system, but at which point I would have, I would have died. Mm. Um, but it didn't. And, but then they thought I wouldn't walk again and that I wouldn't be able to lead an independent life. And they wanted to put me in what they referred to as a unit. I didn't even know what a unit was, but I knew I didn't like the idea. It's not mm. a very nice word, is it? Mm. Um, so actually, I think I owe a huge amount, an awful lot to physiotherapists, because I do remember a physiotherapist coming to my hospital room to visit and her saying, quite respectfully, but firmly to the doctor, the neurologist who was saying there's no point in giving her any physical therapy. I remember the physiotherapist saying, no, I think I can help her. I think we can, you know, can, will you let us try? So you could have just disappeared, like in yeah. Esme. In book, Absolutely. You yes. could have just gone into a <laughs> Absolutely. convalescent home and yeah, not come out. Yeah, I could have done very easily, very easily, without a lot of people fighting my corner. Um, and so that's what happened. I went, first of all, I had sort of hydrotherapy in the hospital pool, and then I did physiotherapy and lots of exercises and lots of lifting weights. And, <laughs> and eventually, a year or so later, I could walk again, just. Amazing. Yeah. And Marcel Proust was also bedbound for a year as a child, and he always thought that he that's what made him able to write remembrance of things past. Do you think mm. it did turn you into a writer that makes you more observant, more empathetic, listening to the language on your tapes? I think yes, I think it did. I think it, uh, I think it probably was instrumental in me being a writer, partly because I, you know, I think so, you know, obviously at that age, your brain is developing so many different directions you know with all these neurons and synapses firing in different ways and in a so-called normal childhood you'd be running around and there'd be a lot of physical development going on so I think a lot of all that sort of neurological energy if you're forced to lie in a bed for a year goes into sort of mental or literary or you know whatever your imagination because that's all you've got you know I mean it wasn't a time when I suppose a child these days would have watched a lot of TV, but I didn't. It wasn't the kind. I mean, yeah. you know, we're all a similar age. There was one play school was on at one t- once a day, and, <laughs> <laughs> and that was it. There's nothing else. News mm-hmm. <laughs> Yeah. So that was also I was, and I think also spending a lot of time on your own, probably is part, obviously part of convalescence. Yeah. Convalescence is a very strange state. You know, you are on your own, and you're this sort of quiet uh, space in the middle of all this other activity because obviously I know now myself that if there's a sick child in the house there's an awful lot going on you know as the parent or the siblings or whatever so I think it's it's a very it's a big mixture of things certainly it impacts on everyone doesn't it absolutely yeah yeah it's something that's shared by the whole family definitely it's not just you but at the time I think as a child you don't necessarily realize that and do you still have sort of mild muscle pains and so I have yeah very very mild neurological Mm. issues yeah so I have problems with my balance and uh, proprioception, which is the the sort of awareness of your where your body is and your limbs are in space. So if I, you could probably pick up that cup of tea without looking at it. 
yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I can't do that. So if I did that, I would knock that off, and it would. <laughs> I so would do you do any sports, or could you play tennis? No, I'm terrible. No, I can't do anything like that. Absolutely shocking. Terrible. I mean, I think I don't know if I was it would have been anyway, but no, I hate. <laughs> yeah, I, I think also I have a hatred of sport because obviously I hated it mm. in school. Um, but I do, and I have you know various yeah muscle problems, but nothing. I mean, honestly, nothing like I could have done. Hmm. I consider myself ext- extremely fortunate. You have to sleep with the light on and things, don't you? So That's right. Yeah. So I can't walk around in the dark. So if I, yeah, I couldn't. If I need to get up in the night, I need to turn the light on so I can see where everything is hmm. because my brain has no sense of whether I'm up or down or on my side or on my back or anything like that. I have no. I rely on my. My so mm. Well, I'm just used to it. It just seems, mm. <laughs> it seems normal to me. <laughs> it's normal. And you write in your memoir that coming so close to death as a young child gave you a brand of recklessness. And that, that's what <laughs> comes out in I am, I am, I am. It's just a, a yeah. series of, of risk-taking some of the time. I mean, some of the time it happens by accident, but some of the time you almost purposely go out, don't you, to... Yes, I think it's true. I think I was, yes, maybe I, I really was a nightmare to rear. Um, <laughs> I think it was, I mean, I don't know, I think coming so close to death and I think being aware of it, I think it could have could have gone either way. It could have made me into a very cautious person and very risk averse, which interestingly, both my sisters are. And I wonder whether that is part of it. I don't know why. You're listening to What I Wish I'd Known in association with Speakers for Schools with Rachel Sylvester and me, Alice Thompson. There'll be more from us just after this. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Welcome back to What I Wish I'd Known in association with Speakers for Schools with Alice Thompson and me, Rachel Sylvester. So you'd missed a year of school and yeah, then uh, going back than, yeah. sounds really hard as well because you were bullied terribly, weren't you? And yes. the teachers were pretty grim too. What what happened? What was the worst well, moment? It was, I mean, it's not easy going back to school. You know, you miss a huge amount of school mm-hmm. and also you go, but I was a different person when I got back you know I had a lot of uh, still had quite a lot of residual uh, walking problems and writing problems and things but I should say I mean I had um, a very good friends I had friends that I'd had since I was really small uh, one of whom I'm still in touch with and I reminded her recently I said do you remember when me and I came back to school I said we were told to go upstairs in the building and I couldn't walk upstairs at this point so I could only crawl and, and I said did you remember I said you crawl with me that's incredible <laughs> I know and she said, I don't remember that. And I said, no, you did. And I said, someone was shouting at me saying, you know, you need to walk. And you turned around and said, but she can't. And so we're going to crawl, both of us. Amazing. <laughs> and amazing. She's still my friend. And but... do you ever see any of the bullies or not? No. 
I mean, actually, the bullies mostly were people I didn't particularly know. There were people in other classes, and no, I don't. I mean, this was in South Wales, where I don't, um, I don't often go. Actually, not not because of that. <laughs> it just so happens. Um, no, I mean, actually, I don't. I don't bear any ill will towards people who bullied me. I think there is a sense that they didn't know what was wrong with me. It was, and I think a lot of bullying comes from fear, doesn't it, or the unknown. And they probably had never been taught to be accepting to people with differences. You know, I don't bear them any any ill will. Do you think that having overcome that kind of physical adversity made it easier to deal with emotional hardship as well? Or was it harder in a way? I think it's hard to differentiate them, actually, isn't it? You know, our bodies are so closely wedded to our minds or emotions, aren't they? Mm. When you were 16, you almost drowned. Yeah, It's terrifying, but actually you jumped in. I did. Yeah, that's the kind of thing you do. Well, it's the kind of thing I did when I was 16. Um, yeah, so that was it. That's when I moved to Scotland and it was very late at night and we were all teenagers and we were daring each other and somebody dared somebody to jump off the end of the pier. So I did, and, but the tide was going out. So I know it was ridiculous, but I've lucky, very luckily for me, among my friends was a very strong swimmer. So he jumped in and pulled that's me so out. But also for you, without that sense of, up and down, side and yeah, that's it must right. have been particularly dangerous, wasn't it? Well, I think all these things, like everything else in life, are enmeshed. You know, I think maybe yeah. I took the dare, but actually I don't have the physical capability to swim, mm. you know, be a strong swimmer in that going tide, certainly. So it is a related bit stupid. But I do love, I love sea swimming and I still do and I still will jump in. But I, I'm much more careful, these, especially since having children. Mm. My risk taking mm. took um, <laughs> a dive. <laughs> yeah. Yes, I've been a lot more careful since then. But when you it's were under the water, me. you must have thought for a moment you were going to die because it sounds terrifying not knowing if you're one way up yes, or the other. Yes, I did realise that I was in real trouble. Mm. But I think in, it's funny in those times, you know, again, one of the things the, the neurologist I spoke to talked about when I was writing I Am, he said that the, sometimes the reason why your memories of such incidents are, everyone's memories of such incidents are so clear is because adrenaline um, aids this sort of hard wires memories because it's all to do with survival. Right. So that if something, you know, you, if you feel threatened or if you're under threat, adrenaline mm. surges through your system and lays down those memories so that if you're in, it's a kind of atavistic survival mechanism so that you're, if you're in that situation again, you can remember mm. how you got out of it. So I think that's why we do, everything seems to slow down, doesn't it? in those moments if something terrifying happens to you. It does sort of, yeah, hardwires it. So I do, yes, I do remember thinking, I'm, <laughs> I'm in trouble, that was really stupid. What, what am I, how am I gonna get out of this? Um, but luckily I had a friend who helped me. And then when you were 18, you were almost attacked by a binocular wielding strangler, which, yeah. Again, that doesn't feel like that was something where you put yourself in danger. Or do you think you did go into quite an isolated place? Just describe what happened then. Yeah, so I was out walking and a man who I had passed earlier down the valley appeared in front of me. And I think in that way that you have to learn, or women have to learn, mm -hmm. you learn it's a kind of a bodily instinct, isn't it? Sometimes your body knows something before your mind does. There's a sixth sense, isn't there? Mm. Yes, something and you suddenly wrong. you get the hairs on your back and your heart speeds up and you think this this isn't right. But what's extraordinary is you were unbelievably calm, weren't you? You didn't scream and turn around and run away or try and get out I don't of think it, it was a question of feeling calm. I think I knew that 
that that wasn't going to work. That there was no there was nobody around, mm. so there was no point in me screaming. And the only way, the only thing I had in my uh, armory, in a sense, was being able to talk my way out of it. There was no, I didn't have any other chance. He was probably twice my size. So I think in in those, if you do get in, unfortunate enough to be in those situations, you flick very quickly through your options and think, well, you know, what have I got on my side? <laughs> Not much apart from trying to talk my way out of it. So he actually put his strap around your neck, didn't he? Well, we were, he was showing me something and he said, I'll put, I want to show you these birds on the lake. So he stood behind me and put the binoculars over my head. So I knew that the strap was around me, but he kept, he was saying, I want to show you something on the lake, but I, like, well, like I was saying, I knew that I wasn't right. Yeah. It wasn't right at all. Well, what's extraordinary is that actually it could have just been an incident that you never knew about, but then a few weeks later you discovered yeah. that he had murdered someone. The police came to find me, yeah, and said, asked me to identify who I had, because I reported it um, and they didn't take much notice, but then detectives came and asked me if I could identify him. And I asked them, I said, something's happened, hasn't it? Mm. And yes, that's where it turned out. Mm. And he had strangled. Yeah. The other young woman. So, yeah. did you feel it was almost like a sliding doors moment? Your life, that another of those things where it could have gone the other way. Yes, I think I felt a huge amount of guilt for mm. years actually about her, and that's why, in the book, and whenever I talk about it, I never identify it because that part of the story isn't mine; mm. it's hers, you know. And did you find out her name or anything? No, it was weird, you know, because it happened so long ago that it was the time before you know, the internet, mm -hmm. and there was no way they wouldn't tell me, and I knew nothing about it. And I've never been able to find it since. I did look for it when I was writing the book, just for my own, not that I ever would have identified her, because what kind of, it would have been so wrong for me to tread on the toes of that tragedy, because it's not my tragedy. And how would it have felt for somebody to be, I don't know, possibly opening a book and suddenly realizing that they were describing somebody who'd avoided, you know, you know, mm. one of her family had read it or her friends. I mean, that would have been awful. And does it come back to you every time that. someone like Sarah Everard gets killed or you see anything in the news about women being killed? Do you get a flashback to it? It happens so often, that though, doesn't it? Mm. I mean, far often, more often than it ever should. So mm. I do, I think about it a lot and I think about her a lot. Yeah, I do probably at least once a day, if not more, because I know it could have been me. It's so awful and so terrifying and... It's appalling that it's still happening, you know, and I'm terrified for my friends and I'm terrified for my young daughters and I'm terrified all the time. I mean... Do you have to stop yourself from telling them not to go out? I mean, that must well, they're be... not quite of an age yet, it's interesting, but I have... I mean, I think the answer... Well, something that frustrates me, you know, that when these terrible things happen and these young women, well, women, you know, disappear, and it's something I've been researching a bit of this for the book that I, my novel that I've just been writing, which is about a young 16-year-old Renaissance Duchess who's killed by her husband. And I was just, when I was thinking about it, I was just Googling some statistics about women who are killed by their partners. And it's horrifying, mm. absolutely horrifying. Something like over half of all homicides for, on women are done in the home. Mm. Which and makes it's two home... domestic violence deaths a week, isn't it? Something, oh, it's something like every four minutes mm. around the world, some a woman is killed mm. by a member of her own family, and which makes the home the most dangerous place for a woman to be. Um, but I think the conversation around it seems to me, you know, whenever this does happen, there's an awful lot of, you know, 
people saying to women, you have to stay inside, you've got to carry a rape alarm, you mustn't walk around alone at night. And there seems to be an awful lot of instructions for women. But actually, I would like to know where are the instructions for men? Mm. You know, I have, when my son was a young teenager and starting to go out and I would always say to him, make sure everybody gets home safely and if there are any girls in your gang, and if they've been drinking, please make sure, you and your friends make sure that they get home. And if they're not going home, you call their mum, you call me, you know, I will call my mum. So I've always saying to him, you have to be careful. Don't ever leave your friends who are girls in a room in a party on their own. Don't ever, do, you know, and I, I think we all need to educate our sons. We need to educate our husbands and friends and say, you know, I think something has to be done. You know, obviously the women being told not to wear revealing clothes and go out at night isn't working, is it? Mm. <laughs> you know, we have to do something else. We have to tackle the problem from within. But you then, your next near-death experience came when you were 21 and you were plunging in a plane down towards <laughs> Earth on oh, the yes. way to Hong Kong. <laughs> not my fault that time. No. But I'm not sure I'd get in a plane with you. <laughs> <laughs> so what were you feeling Did, again was it just a sense of right this is it yes that was very strange because I was going I was heading out to Hong Kong um I just graduated and hadn't done very well in my finals and all my plans for you know postgraduate life had come to nothing so I was going to Hong Kong to just teach English and just to see a bit of the world and the plane for whatever reason just suddenly plummeted apparently it was something to do with pressure I have someone has told me this more recently but it just fell like a stone for what felt like a, quite a long time, oh. for several minutes. And was everyone and, screaming? Yes. Yeah. And it was. I mean, I I was actually still wearing my lap belt, which I always do actually. <laughs> <laughs> ever since. So I actually wasn't hurt too bad, but the people who weren't wearing lap belts were flew up in their seats and hit hit the ceiling. Oh. And so there were a lot of people in the aisles and all of that. And Ooh. then people and even the uh, cabin staff were panicking. And that was the most terrifying thing actually, because normally, as you know, they're so serene but they were kind of running up and down and they were you know they were very frightened and calling to each other and yeah so it was and I really thought we were going to die I thought we were all going to die and then what happened Did it, it just suddenly seemed to kind of plateau and then it went went it what, and then you carried on, on went yes Hong carried Kong on and, and there were going. people there were people having nosebleeds and but we were quite close on so when we landed in Hong Kong there were quite a lot of people were taking it obviously people who were bruised or battered or had, had sort of pressure problems or um, got taken away. Mm. I was okay. I just walked off the plane and <laughs> walked into my new life. <laughs> oh, God. But then you just carried on because you had a machete-wielding person in oh, yeah, Chile, right. didn't you? Yes, and then you had right. the riptide in India. And mm. Do you think I was just very unlucky or lucky? <laughs> I think I'm lucky. Definitely Any of your friends lucky. travel with you now? <laughs> <laughs> I, did. I was walking with a friend recently and I tripped off the curb. <laughs> and he said, oh, my God, don't make it number 18. <laughs> 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 No, I well, no, I do consider myself hugely lucky because any one of those could have been could have been fatal, and mm. I wouldn't we wouldn't be sitting here. So no, definitely, I would. Yeah, I consider myself really lucky. I mean, you know, I have three children, and I do the job I absolutely love, and I'm still alive. I mean, what what more could I want, really? Do you think you're also incredibly aware of danger, though, having been through so many of these things? Perhaps. I mean, I think what. Certainly what I try and teach my children is a is an instinct for your own limits. You know, I would never say to my children, don't climb that tree or don't jump into that river. I think what I try and teach them is 
<laughs> well, I never did, just think it through. Mm. You know, I think I would say to my children when they were little, I'd say, you can climb up the climbing frame, but how, think about how you'll get down. <laughs> you know, <laughs> try and plan ahead or, you know, if you're going out for a party in a tent with some vodka in the hills, which my son did last night, you know, how are you going to get home in the morning? What will you do if it rains? You know, what, <laughs> if somebody isn't well, you know, is there reception on your mobile? You know, think. I suppose it's that. I mean, that's what you have to learn. I think that's what, because we can't all avoid risk. You know, we can't avoid the stranger in the dark mm. alley or the illness in the air. You know, we can't, but what we can, what we can control is our response to it, I suppose, mm. isn't it? Or how we cope with it or how we can try to, try to deal mm. with it. But the long-term consequences of the virus meant you also had real problems when you were pregnant. And, yeah. and that is not in your control at all. That's what's so difficult, isn't it? You no. can say, this is what needs to happen, and, then, and, yes. and this is what I want. And actually, it's quite often men dictating how you're going to give birth, isn't it? In that case, it was, yeah. I, I did meet a not a particularly helpful uh, uh, obstetrician, is the word for it. Um, yes, yeah, so who I still actually, he still appears in my dreams sometimes. <laughs> Because he was a particularly unpleasant man. But actually, weirdly, I do have a friend who thinks he was wonderful. We only realised this quite recently, quite a long time into our friendship that he actually did give her a cesarean. She thought he was bad. So, you know, obviously, I'm sure he is a very good doctor, but he, when whatever day that I encountered him, it wasn't. So he refused to let you have a planned cesarean, even though you've been told you need to. Yes, I was told when, when I was young that that the damage I'd suffered to my neuromuscular junctions in my spine and pelvis meant that I wouldn't be able to have a natural labour. Mm. And so I did, I told him this when I had my meeting and his response was, get up and let me see you walk. No. <laughs> and I was so startled, I just, I did it. And then he just said, well, there's nothing wrong with you. You're just gonna, and then he, he said, well, what's the, where's the proof that you were, you had this illness as a child? And I was thinking, what's, why would I make it up? You know, what am I? And I think he was just sort of implying that I was trying to, just lie my sort way into a cesarean. Yes, you know, yeah. it's so, so, because I was so unprepared for it. Um, yes, yeah, so, but actually what, what the neurologists in the hospital when I was young, it did actually come true. Yeah. So I had to, after three days of labour, no. <laughs> I had to beg him, which is which he eventually did. But he was, I don't know, he was just, just a kind of doctor that doesn't listen. But I, you know, and I think maybe, you know, trying to be, generous with him maybe he was looking after a ward that was horribly understaffed and horribly underfunded and he was just trying to do his job who knows who knows? maybe he'd seen three people that morning who were begging you know begging for unnecessary mm. cesareans I don't know and it was a very 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 busy and understaffed London mm. hospital so I, I mean I have no idea what the kind of pressures that are on a, an NHS obstetrician I can only imagine so maybe if I'm feeling charitable <laughs> mm. I should say and actually I met I met lots of amazing professionals in the medical trade, so, you know, I wouldn't want to judge him too harshly. And you write really movingly in your memoir about having a miscarriage. Mm. Do you think that taboo's now disappeared? Because people didn't write about it for a long time, did they? I hope so. I hope so. I mean, I think it is. It's a very difficult thing to talk about and be public about, I think, at the time, because it's such a raw thing that happens to you and... It's such a devastating thing, but it's so private because often people haven't even told anyone they're pregnant by the time you have a miscarriage. So, but I hope it is. I think the only the only solace that I could find at the time was reading other people uh, writing about it. Just the idea there is such there's a huge amount of comfort and commonality, isn't there? 
mm. the commonality of experience. Mm. And you said that you felt that having children, you've got three now, mm. and that that has changed your attitude to risk. How yes. has it altered how you see the world? Do you, are you incredibly protective of them, <laughs> if not of yourself? Are you more nervous now as well about what you do? I don't know about nervous. I think I'm... I think there's the sense when you have a child, you suddenly realise that, that you have bifurcated, haven't you? And mm. actually, it's not just you you have to take care of anymore. You know, and if I was to be reckless and to vanish from the scene, you know, I think, I, you know, I think it's impossible to know until you have a child how much they need you, mm. you know, and how much they need you to be around and be there as, as often as you can. And actually, for quite a long time, you think that, you know, maybe yeah, in a very different way, they still need you when they're an awful lot taller than you, don't they? <laughs> Obviously, it's not the same as having a toddler, different needs. They can make their own snacks, mm. for example, but they still need someone to buy those snacks. Mm. <laughs> I mean, it is, it, the need changes, but you're, you can't be profligate and reckless with your life because you have this incredible, it's not, I think the responsibility is not quite the word, it's just, you just need to be there. Your presence mm. is required, mm. isn't it? Mm. And your daughter suffers from severe allergies as a result mm. of an immunology disorder. Does that make it even harder because you're never quite sure what's going to happen for her next? It's almost like going back to your parents with you. It is hard. I mean, I think any family who has a member with additional needs, as we do, I think your life is different. It's a bit like living in your own little city-state or your own little country, you know, the people who are inside it understand the rules and the boundaries, but other people looking in may not. So I think, but I always try to frame it as something that all five of us share. It's not just her, not so much the burden, but also the responsibilities and the needs. We all have to meet those needs, but also to remember that her health issues also affect the other her siblings. You know, I think that's yeah. always important to remember that it does have an impact on them and you know, they need they need extra care too. They have extra needs because of it, because of them. And are you just always on high alert? There yes. must have been some See my phone is on. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I mean it's just it's just something you learn to live with, you know, and you just have to get used to and you adjust your life around it. You know, and I think always it's very important to remember that there are people who are in a more extreme situation than you. You know, there are days when it feels overwhelming. Mm. You know, any child with additional needs does feel like that. But I always try and remind myself. I remember the, first, the very first hospital we used to go to uh, it was in London. And we used to have to walk down a corridor. And I remember holding her little tiny hand and walking down this corridor. And there was one sign going to immunology, going uh, left immunology and going right. There was a sign to paediatric oncology. And so I always, however, I've kind of uh, overwhelmed those to be like, thank God. I'm mm. turning right and I'm not mm. turning the other way. You once wrote that in any fairy tale, getting what you want comes at a cost. <laughs> what did you mean by that? Is it partly, do you think that your life has been more magical because of all the near misses and the pain and fear? Or, or Partly. Not? I mean, I always think, you know, I think fairy tales, or folk tales actually is probably a better word for them, are fascinating, I think, because they are, they do chime with this very, very deep folk memories that we have as human beings you know they go so they have such mm. such deep roots and so they are they do reflect a sort of universality of human experience everything is in them you know we can mm. see there there's a reason why they have 
lasted so long because they still mean an awful lot to us now, even in this modern world. But that particular line, I was, so I had a lot of fertility issues after my son, who's now 19, was six years between him and my middle daughter. So we did, and she's, a, she's an IVF baby, which I'm perfectly happy to talk about. <laughs> I think, uh, you know, there are an awful lot of um, fertility issues that people do suffer mm -hmm. an awful lot. Mm -hmm. um, so I suppose I think, and I, it felt very, it did feel quite, I mean, IVF does feel magical, doesn't it? I think, I mean, obviously it's, a hu it's all hugely reliant on science, but there does feel an awful lot of wishing and hoping and, Cost. You know, talismans and yeah. <laughs> cost. Yes, yeah, so not not to mention the cost. Has it too. helped having a husband being there since you were at Cambridge together? Is it <laughs> is, is he kind of like your rock in there? Well, Megan Markle might just, say. <laughs> I mean, I no, I don't think of him as my rock. Not at all. I think of us as partnership, really. I mean, I've known him since I was eighteen, which is so that we we weren't together for another ten years or so. We were just friends for a while, and we were both with other people and in and out of other different relationships when we got together. Actually, I was 27 when we got together. Um, no, I would, <laughs> I would never describe my rock. Makes me sound so kind of boring and yeah. stolid. <laughs> no, not to. I think you'd be quite offended. <laughs> Rightly so. Do you think that overcoming adversity and surviving so many times has given you an understanding of life that makes you a better writer? It's hard. It's funny. I Thinking about why I'm a writer or what kind of a writer I am, I would be with or without it is something I deliberately don't think about. I put it out of my mind. It's a bit like staring at the sun. You know, I know that it's there, but it's bad to look at it too closely. You know, it would be good for me to analyse it too much. But it's hard to say. You know, there's so much debate about whether writers are made or born or... But I think it's probably a mixture of both, isn't it? And I... And certainly, I think there is, you know, as the quote that you read, I think I do... Obviously, I wrote it, so I do agree with it, but <laughs> I do think there is something very formative about adversity. I think drifting through life with things going right are, are good, but like Kathleen Jamie said, you know, happiness writes white. Um, so, yeah, I think everybody needs a bit of grist in their mill, don't they? And looking back to yourself at the age of eight, what do you wish you could tell yourself? If you were back in that hospital room, would you say, actually, you're going to be a writer or...? <laughs> Uh, don't worry or do worry <laughs> you're gonna have a lot of near-death experiences I, I think i just say you're gonna be okay mm. yeah i don't know i don't know if i would tell her she wanted to be a writer i think that, that, that probably wouldn't be very good for her there's a lot of striving that needs to go on you've been listening to what i wish i'd known in association with speakers for schools the youth social mobility charity that provides inspirational talks and work experience opportunities with Rachel Sylvester and me, Alice Thompson, and our guest on this episode, Maggie O'Farrell. The series producer is Anya Pierce. If you enjoyed what you heard, why not pick up a copy of our book, What I Wish I'd Known When I Was Young? Or you can follow the podcast so you never miss an episode. And of course, you can listen back to all our previous episodes on the Free Times Radio app or download them from wherever else you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. Hold up. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.